Well, again, uh, good morning, Faith Covenant Church. Uh, my name is Mike. I am one of the pastors on staff here, and it is just great to have you here with us today as we are in week three of a series that we have entitled, When God Doesn't Make Sense. This is a series that we have based off of one that a number of other churches have done, uh, Andy Stanley, Craig Rochelle, and some others. And if you've missed some of the previous weeks of this series, you can always jump onto our website at 4FCC.org, the numeral 4FCC.org. Go to the Messages tab. You can get caught up with those. Or you can uh, jump onto our Facebook page as we are live streaming at 9 a.m. on Sundays, and you can get caught up on these as well. But what we are doing in this series is we're just taking some time, and we're going, okay, what do we do? If we find ourselves in a season where we're struggling to make sense of God, what do we do if we find ourselves in a place where God seems to be either inattentive or where God seems to be uncooperative or where God seems to be late? In the midst of a season like that, how do we hold on to faith? How do we still live in a way that honors God? How do we make sure that we, we don't walk away from it all, but at the same time, not try and deny that what we're going through is hard. Not try and deny that what we're going through is difficult. Not try and deny the fact that in the midst of what we're going through, we just can't figure out how to make sense of God. And so in this series, we've taken time and just kind of gone, okay, let's each week look at the life story of someone from the New Testament who struggled to make sense of God in their time. And it, let's, let's look at someone for whom God was either inattentive or uncooperative or late. And let's try and draw principles out of their lives from then that might help us in our lives now. And so last weekend, we looked at the life of John the Baptist and, and, and just how God seemed to be inattentive for him. And this week as we continue, we're going to look at the life of the Apostle Paul and how God seemed to be uncooperative for the Apostle Paul. Now, as we do, I've got to warn you, it's going to take us a little bit longer today to get to our passage in the New Testament than it normally does, so hang in there with me. It's just we're going to need to set things up a little bit differently today than we might normally do so. Now, when we do get to Paul and we talk about God being uncooperative with Paul, we're going to look specifically at how God was uncooperative in, in the sense that Paul was asking God to do something. Paul was praying for God to do something. And God just seemed to refuse to cooperate. He seemed to refuse to do what Paul was asking, praying for him to do. Which is something that, that probably a, a number of us can probably relate to in this season. I know it's something that some of us can relate to in this season because I've talked to so many of you about the kind of things that you've been praying for. The, 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 some of us in the midst of this, we've been praying for, for the health of people in our home, for the health of people who we know, for the health of people that we love. There have been all kinds of prayers that have been offered up about things going on at work or things that just happening in our lives financially. There are all kinds of prayers that are being offered about just the relationships that we have with the people in the home that we're, we're living with now. There are all kinds of prayers that are being prayed about what's going on emotionally and what's going on spiritually. And for a number of us, we've been praying 
But we haven't seen answers to those prayers yet. Or for some of you who I've spoken with, we've been praying. And as things have unfolded, they have not gone the way that we have been praying. For, for some of us, as we have been praying in this season, God has been cooperative. And, and chances are, all of us could probably share a story about this season or maybe a season past where we prayed, where we asked God to do something and God just wouldn't cooperate. He wouldn't do what we were asking him to do. So let me, if you would, just let me share with you a story from my past where I just found God to be uncooperative. I sat in my parents' family room with my mom and my dad and my wife as my parents gave us the news. For, for months prior, my mom had been having neurological problems. She wasn't sure what was going on. And, and it finally gotten to a point where my parents couldn't deny something was seriously wrong with mom. And so mom finally went to the doctors, had a number of tests run on her. And in their family room that night, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the test results and listening to my parents tell me what I'm reading about how the doctors finally said to my mom, there's something wrong. So you have some kind of progressively debilitating neurological problem. They couldn't tell her what it was for sure. Maybe it was PICS, maybe it was Alzheimer's, maybe it was dementia. They wouldn't know for sure until after they'd autopsied her brain. What they could tell her for sure is that it was going to get worse. They couldn't do anything about it. And eventually, it was going to cost her her life. Now, I sat there with my parents. And I prayed that night for my mom. And then throughout that season, from the time we got the diagnosis to the time my mom passed, I prayed for my mom almost every day. I prayed that God would do the kind of thing for my mom that I read about God doing in the Bible for other people. I prayed that, that God would do the kind of thing for my mom that, that I would hear from time to time, even still today, that where God would step in and just heal a person. I prayed almost every day of that season for my mom. And still, I watched my mom shut her daycare down. A business that she had run successfully for decades a business that she had taught other people how to open up and run themselves. She just couldn't do it anymore. I prayed for my mom, and yet I watched her, her, her ability to engage in cognitively complex tasks just deteriorate and, and then go away. In spite of how much I prayed for my mom, I watched her forget how to play the piano. As far back as I can remember as a kid, my mom always had a piano in our house. She loved to play, and she just reached a point where she just couldn't do it anymore. Or in spite of how much I prayed for my mom, I watched her forget how to knit. That, that one became undeniable when we were up, up north as a family on vacation 
at Uncle Milo's house. And, and every night after dinner, my wife and my mom and my grandmother would sit down and knit. And every night after dinner, my mother would sit down with my wife. And my wife would teach my mother again, like the simplest stitch. And by the end of the row, my mother would forget. And my wife would teach her again. And by the end of the row, my mother would forget. By the, it, just, it, was, it was just no denying it. Well, I can, I can remember, I remember standing in my parents' dining room and watching my mom forget how to set the table. Just standing there with the forks and the knives and the napkins, and she just couldn't figure out what to do. I prayed for my mom almost every day of that season. And still God didn't do what I asked him to do. In fact, I, I remember the day where it became just undeniable to me that God was not going to cooperate. As my mom continued to deteriorate just cognitively, she got to this point where she had a psychotic episode. Where she became dangerous for the people around her. She became a danger to herself. And she had to be hospitalized, and they put her in the psych unit. And, and she was in there for a while, and they're trying to get, her, to get her stabilized, to either send her to some kind of placement or to send her back home with my dad. And while she's in the hospital, I, I went to go see her. When I got to the hospital that day, the hospital social worker is talking with my mom. She's trying to do discharge planning with my mom, trying to, 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 to find out what does my mom want for discharge planning when she's able to get out of the hospital, which on one hand is just silly because she doesn't know where she is. She doesn't know when it is. She can't even remember who my dad is at the time. And yet on the other hand, like that's, just, that's the social worker's job. Their, their job is to try and elicit the opinions of the person who they're working with. And so she's trying to have this conversation with my mother, and it's, it's largely fruitless. And I come walking into the room as, they, as they're having it. And, and when I do, my mom jumps up, totally brushes the social worker off and says, we don't need to talk about this now. No, my son is here. He'll know what to do. He's going to take care of me now. There's my mom. With all the hope in the world. That I'm going to fix this thing for her. And there I am. With absolutely zero authority over her care or her finances or her placement. Every one of those things, they were right where they should have been in my dad's hands. But my mom is convinced I've shown up and I'm going to be some kind of messiah to her that day at the hospital. When that visit came to an end, it was miserable. The, the, the look of shock and disappointment and betrayal on my mom's face when she realized I was walking out of that psych unit and she had to stay. I, it just made me sick to my stomach. 
And I just went down and I sat in my car in the parking lot at Crittenden and I just wept. And I realized, I don't think God's going to cooperate. I don't think he's going to answer this prayer the way I've been praying. And it was just weeks later that we buried my mom. See, the, the trouble with times like this is that we'll pray and we'll pray and we'll pray. And we'll ask God to do the kind of thing that, that we know he can do. Because we've read about it, we've seen him do it for someone else. But then God doesn't do what we're asking. He doesn't cooperate. And, and, and that kind of thing, it, it can just like rattle your faith. And it can leave you asking all kinds of questions. It can leave you with all kinds of uncertainty about God and about ourselves. It'll leave us wondering, okay, like, is there something wrong with me? Like, is it, did God not cooperate because I don't have enough faith or I'm not obedient enough or I haven't given enough or I haven't served enough or I haven't tried hard enough? Like, I'm praying, but God won't cooperate. Is that because there's something wrong with me? Or sometimes it'll leave us just wondering about, about God. Like, you know, I'm praying and God isn't cooperating. Is that because God doesn't care as much as I thought he did? Or God, he, he just, he's not as good as I thought he was. Or maybe he doesn't pay attention quite like I thought he did. Or maybe God isn't even there. Maybe God doesn't even exist. I've talked to all kinds of people. I've seen all kinds of people go to that place. To that last one especially. Where they're praying, they're asking God to do something. They're sure God could do this. They've, they've seen him do it for other people. They've read about him doing it for other people. And then he doesn't do it for them. And it's like something just breaks inside of them. And they walk away from it all and they go, you know what? If God was really there, he would have cooperated. He would have answered this prayer. I guess he just doesn't exist. And so before we jump into Paul, really quickly, let me just address this, this last one because for some people, they get stuck here. And if they're going to hear what they need to hear about Paul, they, we've got to address this piece here. So, so if, you, if, if, if you've ever been tempted to go, you know, I, God isn't answering this prayer. Maybe he's not even out there. Or maybe if you're even struggling with that right now, let me suggest this to you. God's lack of cooperation, it's not an argument for or against his existence. God not cooperating, it is not a good argument for his existence. It's not a good argument against his existence. In fact, if somebody not cooperating, if that was a conclusive argument for, for that person not existing... If that was true, there would be seasons in my life where my kids didn't exist. 
Because there have been seasons where my kids refused to cooperate. They wouldn't, clean, they, they wouldn't cooperate and clean up after themselves. They would not cooperate and like, be kind to the people that they lived with. They would not be cooperate and, you know, and do their schoolwork. If somebody not cooperating means they don't exist, then there are seasons where my kids did not exist. And this goes both ways, right? Because if, if, if somebody not cooperating means they don't exist, then there were seasons in my children's lives where I did not exist. Because there were seasons where I refused to do what they wanted me to do. And yet, I never found my son, I never found my daughter wandering the house going, gosh, I'm, I'm just not sure if dad's out there. I'm, I'm not sure if dad's real. I'm not sure if dad exists. Dad won't cooperate. Dad doesn't exist. It never happened. In seasons where I refused to do what they wanted me to do, I would find them wandering the house saying other things about me, wishing I didn't exist maybe, but they never came to the conclusion, dad won't cooperate, therefore dad doesn't exist. See, I, I get how emotionally we can go there with God. We're praying God isn't doing this thing we're asking him to do. And emotionally, it's so easy to come to the conclusion, well, therefore, he doesn't exist. I'm just saying, logically, rationally, it doesn't work. That doesn't work. So the question then becomes, what do we do? If we're praying and we're asking God to move, we're asking him to do something, and God just doesn't seem to be willing to cooperate. He is not answering that prayer. How do, we, how do we interpret that? And how do we respond to that? So in an, in an effort to answer those questions, I want to turn to Paul. And, and look at the Apostle Paul and his life and a prayer that he was praying where God seemed to be uncooperative and see what we can learn about how to interpret that in our lives and how to respond to that in our lives. Now, Paul is a fascinating individual. In Paul, you have this man who um, did not believe in Jesus, who could not stand Christians, and who was doing everything within his power to dismantle the church, and was well on his way to doing that until Paul has this interaction with the resurrected Jesus that just flips everything upside down. Paul interacts with the resurrected Jesus and Paul comes to believe Jesus really is who he says he was. And, and Paul has this interaction with the resurrected Jesus and all of a sudden Paul loves his fellow Christians arguably better than anyone in his generation. And Paul has this interaction with the resurrected Jesus and all of a sudden Paul is building the church like no one else. I mean, he's traveling the known world. He shares the gospel. People come to believe in Jesus. It just, I mean, the numbers are staggering because of Paul. He plants churches all over the Roman Empire. He is raising up leaders to, to lead those churches. Paul even writes the Bible. Paul writes more books of the New Testament than any other New Testament writer. And depending on like who you give credit to the book of Hebrews to, Paul writes more books in the New Testament than all the other writers combined. The man does amazing things for the church, amazing things to build the kingdom of God. And for Paul, the price tag for doing so 
It was huge. Paul went through incredible hardship in order to build the kingdom of God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul begins to talk through some of the things that he went through in order to do what he did for the church. Listen to what Paul says about some of the things he had to go through. Paul will say, I have worked much harder. I have been in prison more frequently. I have been flogged more severely. I have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Why he can't just say 39 there, I've never understood. But five times I received the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been in constant I've constantly been on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toil. I have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst. I have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, besides all this junk that I've been subjected to, Paul then begins to talk about like the pressure that he feels as a leader in the church. He says, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led to sin and I do not burn inwardly? In Paul, we have this individual who did incredible things to build the church, to drive forward the mission of the kingdom of God. And in Paul, we have this individual who paid a huge price in his life in order to do that work that God called him to do. So you might, you might think that in Paul, if, if anybody ever had the ability if anybody ever had the ability to leverage or to bargain with God, it would be Paul, right? Like if anybody ever had the ability, like when they're praying to go, hey God, look what I've done and get God to maybe respond to that, Paul would be the guy who had the ability to do that. You ever been tempted to do that when you're praying? And maybe you wouldn't call it trying to leverage God. Maybe you wouldn't call it trying to bargain with God. But like you're praying and you're going, hey God, I mean, have you seen the way that I've served faithfully at church? I mean, for goodness sake, I have served in faith kids. I've worked with the preschoolers. That's got to count for something extra. Or God, have you, have you noticed? Like every pay period, without faithfully, 10% or better? You, 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 you notice that, right? Or come on, God. Like, I, my life has been squeaky clean. That's got to get, that's got to earn a little more attention. Directly or indirectly, just outright in the back of your mind, have you ever been tempted to, to, to try and bargain with God of you as you were praying? If anybody had the ability to do that and have it work, It should have been Paul. And yet, in Paul, we have this individual 
who prayed and asked God to move. And yet God was uncooperative. Paul describes this this way. In the next chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. According to Paul here, you know, he's going, hey, I have seen incredible things. I have heard incredible things. I have done incredible things. And, and to keep me from getting too big ahead, from just buying into my press clippings, I was given a thorn in the flesh. Now, th this is kind of a fun term. We, we use this term a lot in our culture. You know, we'll talk about, you know, you know my, the thorn in my flesh, my ex-spouse or my boss or, you know, the, the, this professor at school or this, you know, the, the, this individual who I, you know, I have to deal with in the neighborhood. They're a thorn in my flesh. People use that term all the time, having no idea that this is a biblical term, that that's where that term comes from. Paul says, to keep me from being conceited, this thorn in my flesh, this, this messenger from Satan was put into my life. Now, I don't know if Paul means that literally or figuratively when he says this was a messenger from Satan. Again, this is a term we use a lot in our culture, and we tend to use it figuratively. You know, like I had the vacation from hell, or we had the week from hell, or my neighbor is Satan himself. You know, we use this term figuratively. I don't know if Paul meant it figuratively or if he meant it literally, but he says, this thing was sent. This, this thorn in my flesh, this messenger from Satan, and it tormented me. Every missionary journey, it is there just eating his lunch. Every sermon he's prepping or trying to give, it's there in the background messing with him. Every project he's working on, this thing is there interfering. Whatever this thing was, and, and scholars argue about what it was. Some think maybe it was, you know, like, like Paul was epileptic, that he had uncontrolled seizures. And in that day and age, if you had a seizure, people just assumed you were possessed by some kind of demon. You know, they, they, some, some scholars, you know, they, they think, you know, Paul would just have these seizures all the time. And he'd just wake up and everybody's looking at him sideways and wondering what's wrong with him. And he's, it, it, maybe it was that. Some people think that it was um, reoccurring bouts of malaria where his health would just tank. Some people think it had something to do with his eyes. We know he had some kind of visual deficit. Some people propose that it was that. Whatever it was, it was constantly there just nagging at Paul and just tormenting him. Just tormenting him. And so in Paul, this man who arguably did more than anything else for the kingdom than anyone else in his generation. This man who was called by God to do incredible things, who did incredible things for God. Paul prays and asks God to do something for him. Paul is basically praying, God, would you do for me what I've seen you do for so many other people? God, would you just do for me what I've seen you do through me for so many other people? In fact, Paul prays, and Paul tells us that three times he pleaded with the Lord to take it away from him. Now, when Paul says he prayed three times, I don't think Paul is saying he literally just offered up three prayers and that was it. 
Like, you know, he got up on Monday morning and prayed and nothing happened. And so he got up again on Tuesday morning and prayed and nothing happened. And Wednesday morning, he took Wednesday off because he felt kind of discouraged after Monday and Tuesday. And then Thursday came and he gets up Thursday and around lunchtime he prays again. And he's like, all right, that's it. It's just not happening. No, I, I think Paul is saying, I had three seasons where this, this thing is tormenting me and I'm just hitting the wall. And I'm not sure... I don't know if I can do this anymore. And for a season, I just plead with God to take this thing away from me. And so Paul, the guy who God knew by name, who God charged to build the church like no one else in his generation, who successfully did that, God still says no to Paul. Instead, instead of cooperating, instead of giving Paul what he asked for, God instead says this to Paul. And I would contend he says it to you and he says it to me when we're praying and he seems to be uncooperative. God says to Paul, he says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. No, Paul, I'm not going to do that. But my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to give you what you're asking for right now. But my grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to ask you to go through one more season of this. But my grace is is sufficient for you. I'm going I'm to ask you to, to deal with this thing again. But my grace is sufficient for you. My grace, it is adequate. It is more than enough. It is what you need. It is sufficient for you. And then God tells Paul, after telling him, my grace is sufficient for you, God tells Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. My power, it's made perfect. It's made mature. It comes to full fruition in your life, in your weakness. Now, here's the thing about this. Most of us, we wouldn't voluntarily sign up for this kind of thing. Most of us, we, we, we want to we be the guy in the end zone with the football under one arm and our finger pointed up in the air, giving glory to God as we score the winning touchdown. Or, or most of us, we want to be the artist, standing up on stage, accepting the award, and in our acceptance speech, you know, we'll, we'll thank our producer, and we'll thank our spouse, and we'll thank our parents, and, and then we'll say something along the lines of, and I, I just, I just want to thank God. I just want to give glory to my Lord Jesus. See, we're all about giving glory to God. We just, we just want God to leverage our strength for his glory. We don't want God to leverage our weakness for his glory. 
We're all about God. Leverage my strength. Put the spotlight on me. Do something amazing through me. And when you do, I'll point to heaven. I'll give you the glory. That's not a bad thing. And sometimes God does that. But other times, God says, no. I'm not going to leverage my glory through your strength or your talent or your success. I'm going to leverage my glory through your weakness, through your inability, through your struggle. I'm going to get glory, but it's not going to be on the stage of your strength. It's going to be on the stage of your weakness. And when I do, my grace will be sufficient for you. My power will be made perfect in your life through your weakness. You know what? When it comes down to whether or not God's going to receive glory from our strength or from our weakness, we don't get to pick. Probably because none of us <laughs> would choose to let him get glory through our weakness. Which, which is ironic when you think about it. Because chances are, we've all seen another Christian, or we've all read about another Christian, who, who's going through things in life. The, the kind of things that just, they're so hard they make you shudder. And you find yourself thinking or praying, man, I am so glad. I don't mean to be mean, but I'm so glad that's them and not me. God, I don't know how they're doing that. God, I don't know if I could go through that thing. And as you watch or as you read, you see that person making it through what they're facing. And you see them even doing well in the midst of it. And you, you watch as their life points people back to God. And as, as you get closer and you talk to them or you read deeper, if you scratch beneath the surface of that person's life, you'll hear them or you'll read them say something like, you know, I, I don't know how to explain it. But in the midst of all of this, God's been with me. His grace has gotten me through this. If you've ever known someone like that, if you've ever read about someone like that, the ironic thing is they are the most impressive people we will ever meet. If life is about bringing glory to God, they do it better than anyone else else yeah we like the athlete yeah we like the artist and there's nothing wrong with them bringing glory to God but the the people who really move us the people who grow our faith the most are the people who God chooses to leverage his glory through their weakness not through their strength. 
those people, they make us just catch our breath at the glory of God that we see in them that we just can't see anywhere else. Those people make you scratch your head. Those people will cause you to come to the conclusion that there's got to be a God out there. There's just no other explanation for somebody facing those kind of circumstances and coming out of it that way. It's got to be God. So back to Paul. Back to Paul. When we look at somebody like Paul, who did all that Paul did, and still found God to be uncooperative with him, there are a few things that we, we learn from Paul and his life. We, we learn that sometimes God will showcase his strength in our weakness if, if we're willing to take no for an answer. Paul pleads with God for three different seasons. Paul pleads with God and God tells Paul no. Paul takes no for an answer. And arguably, Paul did more for the kingdom. Paul brought more glory to God after God told him no than he did before God told him no. God, God will showcase his strength in our weakness if we're willing to take no for an answer. Not only so, but from Paul's life, we see that when God says no, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with whether or not we have enough faith or we've been obedient enough or we've given enough or served enough or whatever else. Because Paul did all of those things. Again, arguably better than anyone else in his time. And still God said no. When, God, when you pray and God doesn't cooperate, that doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong with you. You can be doing everything right and still have God not cooperate. And from Paul's life, we, we see that sometimes God will say no, and that doesn't have to have anything to do with whether or not God cares, or God loves, or God is present. Because again, God was all of those things in Paul's life. God cared for Paul. He loved Paul. He knew him by name. He was present in his life. And still God said no. God can refuse to cooperate with what you're asking him to do. And he can still love you. He can still know you by name. He can still care deeply for you and be ever present in your life. And so Paul finishes with this. He says, therefore, God has said, I prayed, God said to me, no, no, my grace is sufficient. My power is made complete. It's made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest in me. For that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. 
For when I am weak, when I get to the end of me, then I'm strong. Then God's power can really be unleashed in my life. So as we finish, really quickly, let let me just leave you with four thoughts. Thought number one. We can ask God to remove the thorns. If you're going through a hard season, if you are struggling with something, it's okay to pray. It is okay to ask God to take that away. It is legal for you to ask God to remove that thorn from your life. That that is not a poor reflection on you or your faith. It's okay. Paul prayed that way, and people greater than Paul prayed that way. There's nothing wrong for you asking God to remove those thorns. You can do that. But as we pray, we need to remember thought number two. That God has the right to tell us no. It is legal for us to pray and ask God to remove that thing. But it's legal for God to say no. God told Paul no. He told people greater than Paul no. He may tell you or me no. And when he does, it may be because of thought number three, that God is choosing to showcase his power on the stage of our weakness. From time to time, God may say no because he's choosing to showcase his power. He's choosing to leverage our lives for his glory on the stage of our weakness, which may mean that things don't change, It may mean that things aren't going to work out the way that we wanted them to. That that person isn't going to get healed. That that money isn't going to come in. That that relationship isn't going to change. That instead, God is going to use this as an opportunity to showcase his power and our weakness. And when that's the case, We need to remember and hold on to thought number four. That we won't experience God's sustaining grace while we're resisting his will. See, when God says no, we can fight that. We can get angry. We can quit talking to him. We can quit singing those stupid Christian songs. We can quit meeting with those people who still believe this stuff. We can completely push God away. We can get to the point where we decide God doesn't exist. But the grace that we so desperately need when God isn't cooperating with what we're asking him to do, we cut ourselves off from that grace when we resist his will. Instead, we need to learn to pray what Jesus prayed. Jesus' prayer was not my will, but your will be done. In the garden, Jesus is pleading with God, I don't want to do this. Is there a better way I've got some ideas, but not my will, but yours be done. 
because Jesus was willing to take no for an answer, because he didn't resist his Father's will, God was glorified. And his grace was made perfect in Christ.